Welcome to the Listen, Learn, and Lead series of interviews with extraordinary leaders here at Naval Post Graduate School. Our faculty are part of the magic here at NPS, where they come together with our operationally experienced students and develop solutions and really work on innovative and creative ways to address the challenges and the opportunities in our naval forces today. Today I am pleased to speak with three leaders from the NPS Center for Additive Manufacturing. With me today are Drs. Emre Gunduz from the Mechanical Engineering Department, Amela Sadajik from the Computer Science Department, and Gerardo Ferrer from the Graduate School of Defense Management. And that's one of the absolute magic also of NPS, the interdisciplinary approach that we have with our faculty and our students across the intellectual uh, span of our institution, solving in multidisciplinary ways many different kinds of problems. So just this week, NPS and Xerox announced a new strategic collaboration focused on advancing additive manufacturing research and the installation of Xerox's first liquid metal printer, which has the potential to dramatically transform the way that the military supplies its forward deployed forces. But first, well, I would like to have each of our uh, guests today talk about their background, what brought them here, and the kind of work that they do here at NPS. So let's start with Dr. Kunduz. First, sir, your background and, and what brought you here and the work that you're doing here. Thank you, President Randall. Uh, my name is Emre Gundus. Uh, I'm an associate professor at the Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Department. Uh, I'm also the co-director of the Center for Additive Manufacturing at MPS, uh, along with uh, Dr. Saragic. Uh, my research is on uh, additive manufacturing of energetic materials and uh, metal-based systems. Uh, my background is in uh, material science and mechanical engineering. A lot of my research involves with uh, materials development and additive manufacturing platform development uh, for different applications. And you came from Purdue University, correct? Yes, prior to MPS, I was a faculty at Purdue University. Uh, I worked at the Zucrow Labs on energetics and uh, propulsion work. Great, thank you. Dr. Sadajik, please, uh, about your background and what you do. I am uh, Dr. Amela Sadrgic, uh, Research Associate Professor in Computer Science and Modeling Virtual Environments and Simulation Institute. And I also have a role of uh, co-director of NPS Center for Additive Manufacturing. My expertise is in uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, human factors. Uh, we do uh, all kinds of studies uh, where we examine efficiency and effectiveness of uh, range of systems, most of them uh, training systems. And my interest in additive manufacturing came through adoption of technology. Uh, before I was studying uh, adoption of uh, training simulations in DOD, and those insights were crucial to, to bring to study of adoption of additive manufacturing. And the, as the other aspect of uh, uh, interest in additive manufacturing comes from use potential that we can use virtual reality and augmented reality to do rapid prototyping in additive manufacturing. Thank you. And Dr. Ferrer. 
Well, I'm Gerald Ferrer, and I, I also have a degree in uh, mechanical engineering for undergrad. I worked in the petroleum industry for seven years. And then uh, one day I decided to get my MBA. Uh, I came to the United States, did my MBA at Dartmouth College. And I decided that what I really wanted was academia. And for that, I did my PhD in technology management. After seven years at University of North Carolina, I came to uh, NPS to be a professor of supply chain management. And it was at about the same time I became American citizen. And uh, so I've been at NPS for 16 years teaching supply chain management. And uh, a few years ago, I saw additive manufacturing as uh, the game changer that could change that could improve uh, the uh, supply chain of spare parts at sea. So that's a great segue into my next question is manufacturing. If you talk about, if you use that word in, in all kinds of places, they think about uh, large business, I mean, large buildings that they make things. And uh, in the old days, you have, you know, the, the spewing forth from, from the smokestacks. But then there was a, there's a view about manufacturing that it feels like an old word and yet now with the additive manufacturing and all the things that we're doing this is now a new word it's and it's a new phenomenon as to how we look at materials can you talk a little bit about how that does affect supply chain for instance yeah uh, absolutely um, well uh, the field of supply chain management actually is started as a support of manufacturing operation so the concern being of uh, how to have the right, uh, right supplies at the right place at the right time so that you could make the items that you want to make. Now, uh, for the Navy, uh, what you need is the right spare part at sea, and then you don't have a lot of flexibility. How are you going to do that? And uh, so additive manufacturing, uh, really um, makes the possibility of transforming how you get uh, things available the moment you want, you simply make it. And obviously we're not there yet, but uh, that's uh, what, from the point of view of defense management and supply chain management, that's what we're looking for in additive manufacturing, the day that we're gonna have that full capability. So we go from there about, about what we have for a supply chain, and we go to the notion about at sea, okay? So, so we're here at Naval Post Graduate School, this notion of needing things at sea. It seems to be two different things here that I'm, I would be interested in all of you talking about, and that is both the fact that sailors at sea need to fix things. And I know for a fact that they yearn to go back to being able to fix things rather than having the plug and play and popping things in and out, but to fix them rather than to replace them. Now also there is an innovation going on at sea of things they had never had that now are useful. So would you three talk about that a, a bit in, in the terms of innovation at sea and making things at sea? And why don't we start with you, Amela? Oh, I'd be happy to expand on that. Uh, um, Innovation by sailors and marines and soldiers, all services really, is uh, a very important part of uh, uh, manifestation of uh, additive manufacturing. Unlike many other technologies where you get a 
complex product, and there's very little you can do about it. Um, for example, big training systems, maximum you can do is to tweak a little bit of a training scenario. But you cannot um, invent everything you know, from scratch. Um, in additive manufacturing, that is possible. And so, uh, talking about Navy, Navy has, uh, together with Marine Corps, of course, has a whole range of laboratories that are made available to sailors and Marines so they could come and do innovation. They receive training there um, and they start innovating in terms of developing parts or even tools that never existed. And so um, our unique capability is to visit those places, talk to those people, collect the data set, and we have numerous examples of those parts uh, and tools, as I said, never existed but uh, uh, made uh, as innovation by sailors and marines saving time, resources, um, and certainly money. And, and before Emory, I know, wants to come into to this, but can you give me an example? You talked about some uh, examples, a story. Well, I, I uh, can reflect on a story of uh, um, uh, one vessel uh, where there was no um, specific wrench for, for the bolts that they had. They had very few uh, bolts of that kind and uh, sailors had to find a way around with different kinds of tools. And because they, they had access to metal printer, they decided to make their own custom-made uh, wrench. And so that was uh, clearly uh, one way to address uh, missing um, resources. Um, another example um, that I vividly remember is uh, one maintainer who needed to climb a big uh, structure and bring five tools with him to uh, make certain repairs and, and conduct maintenance. He decided to fuse those five tools in one. Yeah. And, and that had its, its own uh, parts uh, specific design. And so instead of taking five, risking that one will drop from, from yeah. uh, height, he has only one. So, so those are those are kind of ingenious solutions that uh, sailors are coming up. And so uh, more, yeah. more they have access to that technology and way of thinking, they are coming with more and more examples. The way of thinking is really a byproduct of all, of all that, isn't it? No, no matter what they made, the fact that they made it and went through that process of thinking about it. So Emery, what, uh, what, what would you say about that kind of phenomenon? Well, as part of my background, I'm more interested in the technical aspects uh, of that kind of adoption. So, um, one part, important part is the having uh, material systems that have adequate uh, properties that can be used on board the vessel. Uh, another thing is the the printing system that can uh, operate under those conditions in a satisfactory way. For some parts, it might not be critical, but for some other parts, that's an important consideration. So. My research is involved with uh, more on the technical side and materials development and how those parts that are printed, what kind of properties they have. That's an integral part of that process. There was, it, there was an article written, though, that said that your method is a game changer in several ways as to how you do these things and that it allows for printing of viscous materials in existing high-performance high systems that previously lacked the ability to print these materials. So what's, what's that mean, and, and can you give us an example of that? Sure. Um, a lot of uh, rocket propellants consist of these uh, powder ingredients mixed with a binder, and uh, they will have typically a lot of particle with little binder just to hold them together. 
And being able to uh, print these systems is really challenging due to the viscosity of the material. So my prior work and my continuing work here, we figured out a way to be able to extrude these materials very quickly at a high resolution. That enables you to part uh, to print. That enables you to print uh, really unique parts with uh, customized geometries. That makes most use of the energetic content or other properties of the materials you use. So you might be using the same materials, uh, but you gain a lot of advantage just by changing the geometry on your composition, uh, which is a big advantage. It's a it's, that is a fabulous point. So when you all are together in this group, and it's interdisciplinary, and you, and you talk about the different domains, and that not every domain can be all things to all people and all clients, but there must be enough to each one. What are your conversations when you talk about that in the supply chain area, when you talk about that in all of the other areas with regard to making things, and, and, when, and when you um, discuss it with regard to materials? What are your conversations about, gosh, this is a good idea, or no, that, that's a bad idea? What are, are the conversations that you have amongst your, yourselves? That dialogue uh, manifests, it's, uh, the dialogue that we have uh, is, is a very good example why um, the, the value of interdisciplinary research. Um, I think that uh, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary research uh, can have the biggest quality if we have shared uh, language. And so that's what we are trying to uh, establish and, and uh, understand. Um, so um, I may be familiar with uh, return on investment, but I'm not expert in that. However, I can bring my uh, knowledge of what matters to human users to that domain to enrich uh, expertise of my colleagues. So um, what we try to do is to expand the number of projects where we have uh, more than one expertise, more than one. Um, sometimes it's not possible to have everyone involved, and so twos and threes and fours is certainly something that we, we try to bring in projects. And we have that type of project in the past, and we still have them. Uh, there's also a whole new domain that we would like to bring uh, to the fold. Um, those are um, sensor technologies, um, artificial intelligence, uh, data science, um, robotics. Um, so. There's a lot to be done in the future, and we hope you'll, you'll hear from us more in the future as well. So if, you, if everything were to, that, would, that would accommodate this would be in place, what do you think would be the, one of the uh, great breakthroughs, Geraldo, if you had all of this and, the, and it would make the supply chain different? Yeah, there, there are two... There are two possibilities ahead of us. One is the, uh, the additive manufacturing support of weapon systems that are out there that already exist. And then there is the additive manufacturing support, the weapon system of the future. So I, I believe that, uh, I mean, we already see it happening that uh, new products are being designed with uh, additive manufacturing integrated into their planning, their manufacturing planning. And uh, especially in um, aviation and space systems and so on, because of enormous uh, weight savings. I mean, I'm, I'm actually talking it, uh, to their specialty, but that's the greatest benefit of additive manufacturing the is saving. the reduction of weight yeah. and sometimes um, improving its strength. 
So that's an opportunity that a new weapon systems will have more and more. And at that moment, now answering to your question, what's the opportunity there, is that when it comes the time to provide the maintenance to these new weapon systems, um, we will already have the printing files for all of those uh, parts, big and small, that sooner or later will fail after so many times of usage. So that's the future out there where I think we're going to be uh, in a few years. So I'm a history major here, so, so um, we, we are having a hazard here on my own competence. But it does strike me that this conversation moves manufacturing and the making of things, not only from, from stamina, persistence, and, and endurance, but also to movement. So that, for instance, the Commandant of the Marine Corps just recently said, we need to have, we, we, we need to begin to think about things as, as throwaways, and then how you quickly will re recover so you can throw away something and quickly make it again. So that you get into this notion of manufacturing as a movement as much as a as endurance. How is that right? I mean I'm 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 I've done some history uh study of militaries over time and certainly um different things like uh speed uh and and density certainly those kind of things of the propulsion systems, energy systems change military dynamics and the nature and character of militaries. What do you see for a new military when, or a new Navy or a new Marine Corps with this kind of thing of lighter weapon systems, uh, maybe going from, from uh, hard kill ordnance to something else, and that maybe the speed of being able to make something is the tactical advantage. Talk to me about that. So with energy manufacturing, what we have uh, uh, is uh, unprecedented capability to uh, make things uh, uh, when we need them, just in time. Uh, and I uh, find an interesting parallel with training, training in time. Training somebody so that they can use skills in two or three years, well, those skills will deteriorate, uh, is not a really uh, a winning recipe. But training something um, just before they, they are going to need those skills is a, a new way uh, to approach, alternative way to approach. Similar is with, uh, uh, with uh, production, manufacturing of the things. So making them just when you need it, uh, not carrying them as my colleague suggested, not carrying them with you all the time and you, you need to have a gigantic ship for a lot of spare parts. And uh, there's also um, a great, great value in uh, um, self-sustainability. You are your own uh, supplier uh, whenever needed and you don't have to wait for parts, spare parts to be shipped to you. So you, are, um, you can uh, increase your readiness uh, uh, several times uh, higher. So is, I do not know how much uh, you have in terms of the center of the history of the supply system at sea and and tender supply ships and and store ships. You know the the old ships that do all kinds of work. They almost like a floating factory. Okay, uh, do you see the the rise of that, the revival of of the 
of the ships at sea that are actually manufacturing ships? Oh, that's, uh, I haven't thought about it, but it's, it's really inspiring. I can see that easily happening. So we're going to, that complements well what I had in mind before. What I thought was that the larger ships, certainly the aircraft carriers, but uh, many of the others with more space, they would have their own shops that would support mm -hmm. the rest of the battle group. But you could have those large supply ships with uh, much more capable uh, manufacturing capabilities where they would uh, have a large variety of machines. Uh, one thing we didn't mention, and it's again, it's an expertise of my colleagues here. Emery um, alluded to having a variety of machines, but eventually it, it takes out space, right? And uh, so higher temperature, lower temperature, polymers, metals, alloys, and so on. And uh, it could be too much to have even an aircraft carrier, but if you have a supply ship that would uh, complement that capability at sea, that would be fantastic. Yes, uh, I could it's see that it's happening. It's, it's a thought, the old subtenders of what I'm talking about. <laughs> but but it, it is yeah. really uh, yeah, a great thought. Emery, some, some thoughts on this? Yeah. The as in the future, um, in general, everything is going to be more dynamic and agile systems that can respond to these uh, will be really necessary. The future of warfare is probably going in that direction, complemented with you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence, automated systems. So AM, AM has certain aspects that addresses those to be able to uh, operate under those conditions. You need that kind of uh, automated systems with large, basically it, it has to be very agile systems yeah. that can uh, really uh, respond rapidly to dynamic environments. Amel, I've heard about the Naval a uh, Additive Manufacturing Enterprise 2030. Could you talk about that a little bit, please? I would be happy to. So Naval Additive Manufacturing Enterprise 2030 is umbrella effort initiative that we uh, cited at MPS. Um, it's part of activity done by our Center for Additive Manufacturing that my colleague Emre Gudus and I are co-directors. And so that's a um, kind of nice home to have to fold a number of interdisciplinary uh, research efforts to be part of that. But for us, that was uh, more like a vehicle to advance um, uh, all kind of research on additive manufacturing within NPS. We also, a part of that, very important part, is uh, our collaboration with industry and academia, uh, as well as a number of uh, institutions, uh, naval institutions. And so um, one, uh, our work with uh, Xerox Corporation is part of that effort. Speaking of Xerox, Emery, um, I'm curious about your thoughts. So why bring the Xerox LMP here uh, and what is it that that kind of partnership of Xerox and NPS and looking at liquid 3D printing, what does all that mean for us? Well, we get a nice toy to play with, so that's what <laughs> excites me the most. But um, So it, it's really important, I, and I alluded to this before, uh, but uh, one size does not fit all. 
So you typically to address many different challenges, uh, you need a variety of systems with uh, certain capabilities. And there have been uh, a lot of systems uh, printing different materials and uh, larger or smaller structures. Uh, but the Xerox system uh, fits a different category of uh, medium size, uh, like lightweight alloy production uh, at high resolution and high speed, which makes it uh, really attractive. Uh, we're really uh, excited about the collaboration. And uh, uh, we hope our research work here is uh, going to help the Navy's goals of uh, especially uh, increased operational uh, readiness. Uh, being able to print these parts yeah. uh, while at sea is a great advantage. Yeah, so I know that Xerox is very excited about how we could do these things at sea and give them some insights about development and those kind of things. We did that through the collaborative research and development uh, uh, agreement called a Kratom. But I know that Xerox is as equally excited about you having a toy as they are, as you are, because it allows them to have somebody who's really looking at the application of this work. So that, and you've got this whole set of students. So uh, I think it's, it's going to be really a terrific new uh, approach to partnerships, wouldn't you say? Yes, yes. I think uh, we can do a lot of science on it as well. And we want to... Uh, basically investigate all these aspects of these systems uh, and then uh, uh, move that further to uh, warfare centers or other collaborators for uh, actual certification and uh, those kind of efforts that requires these systems. So what's on. great about this is when um, Harold had talked about the adoption to a network, uh, that this is a kind of network. So if we're now helping the warfare centers and they're helping us to understand things, now we have an, an enterprise, an ecosystem of intellectual um, capacity building, and, and that's just terrific. This whole uh, enterprise with Xerox was so great. It is great, and I know that uh, they, uh, they have been very, very pleased with this whole prospect as well. So I look forward to seeing the new things that you'll discover with all that. would like to mention, and uh, as my colleague uh, suggested, um, there's a really specific value about this printer. Um, one is the type of material uh, that it's using, it's aluminum. So, uh, so you are branching out. We are uh, expanding uh, types of materials that we can print with metal printers. So all of this takes, uh, I mean, um, this notion about being able to teach is way of thinking. Uh, it's a different way of thinking. Um, and so how... When you're in your classrooms and when you're thinking about this and you're talking about this together with your colleagues and each other uh, in the additive manufacturing space, what is it that you think are, are, are attributes to be able to learn like this and then not only need to learn to do, but to actually do? What, what do you think are the attributes that students, that operators and students need to acquire to really advance this kind of work? I think you mentioned uh, change of a uh, mindset, that uh, um, that people can um, innovate. And uh, um, for example, in our classes, we don't teach additive manufacturing. We have computer science modeling simulations. Um, however, we extensively use additive manufacturing as tool to make uh, one-off uh, props that we need for our studies. And some of those props are uh, behind me. Mm -hmm. Uh, where we, um, for example, printed those heads uh, to 
examine some elements of mixed reality. So projected um, uh, human faces on um, 3D printed heads so that we can see what kind of effect uh, can they be used as uh, uh, part of uh, uh, physical training ranges where you would like to present virtual humans, for example. So for a number of years, um, MPS used additive manufacturing as a tool. And so we see both kinds of research uh, going on. Uh, one where we use um, products of 3D printing as tools to support some other domains, and then uh, studies that are focused specifically on edge manufacturing, like our colleagues in uh, uh, mechanical engineering, and then studies on return on investment or, or others uh, where edge manufacturing is as a center of our attention. So you also, uh, when you, you're on the edge there, also talking about what you have passion about, and that's how the whole um, artificial uh, and virtual reality comes into play too, right? Very much, yes. And uh, I, I believe I mentioned that uh, our, uh, one of our goals is to use those technology for rapid prototyping. Yeah. And uh, um, when we think, when I think about edge uh, manufacturing as much as many other uh, technologies, it's never success that was made in, in that particular technology. It's success that is made in a whole range of technologies. And so adoption of uh, um, uh, 3D printing edge manufacturing uh, will have to follow the, the success of material science, success of how you make interface. If you make interface too complicated, then it's very hard to see masses of sailors and, and uh, marines being able to model those uh, 3D um, objects and then print them. So I talked to you, I had said to you that I wanted to talk a little bit about leadership. I think I'd like to be a, a bit of an adjustment here and ask you three to talk to me about the notion of adoption. So this is really important to your work and Emory, you've used the term, Mel, you use the term and, and Geraldo, you use the term. So this is a common term for your discipline, this interdisciplinary uh, approach that, that has to look at these things. I'm going to start with you, Geraldo, and tell me about your view of uh, how do you teach adoption and how do leaders practice adoption? So uh, uh, I have a segment in my course on RFID, which is another technology that is critical for supply chain management. And we discussed the challenges of RFID adoption. Um, the, the problem with, uh, or the challenge of a new And RFID is what, RFID? Radio frequency identification, right, right. which uh, uh, it allows to uh, make a unique identification of any item, any item that we have uh, in a supply chain. And it has several challenges, uh, different protocols. It's uh, not uh, completely unified uh, internationally and even within the Navy. So those challenges of technology adoption exist every time a new technology is invented or becomes prevailing. Even old technologies, uh, when they start growing, and then uh, growing across geographic territories, then we see that there are uh, conflicts of protocol. So the, it's uh, the networked uh, 
at the same time, challenge and benefit, once you have sufficient critical mass, then adoption grows exponentially. Mm -hmm. uh, so th this is one side. The other side is having the technologies significantly advanced so that there are uh, sufficient users that will believe in it and <laughs> will adopt it. And uh, eventually, you know, concerns like how much it costs and how fast it is, mm -hmm. well, volume will drive progress in uh, cost and time. But yes, some, uh, sometimes a new technology, a new concept is criticized because we haven't given enough time to test it and evolve. Uh, that's and that's something yeah. that we discuss uh, uh, a lot in our mm -hmm. class when we're talking about RFID and additive manufacturing gradually is getting in the conversation as well. No, I think that those, that, that's, that is superb. Those, there's lots of complications in all that, but it's really important to understand all that. I, think that again, I, that I have a good that. example. Okay. Uh, Graham Bell, the first that guy that he sold a telephone, who did he want to call to? So the idea is you need a network. Yeah, you so need a network, yeah. So breaking that barrier of there are not enough users, it takes time. Adoption takes a little bit of mass, a little bit of, of a yes, network. Yes, yeah. critical mass, yeah. Emory, you talked about adoption differently. So can you talk a little bit about your view about uh, adoption? My focus is more on the supporting adoption rather than adoption per se, which is uh, uh, Dr. Sarevich's uh, expertise. Uh, to make that a reality, you have technical challenges, and I try to address that in my research as well as uh, uh, my lectures with the students. So, uh, again, it, as I mentioned before, it comes to systems development and materials development that really makes it possible, the, the adoption. I try to, uh, in my class here yeah, with the students, we try to also solve some challenges, and they, they get to see uh, what can you do and what you can't do with the system, and I think it's really important, and uh, what can you do to make it better. Because part of our uh, thesis research topics with the students, uh, we also look at uh, developing new systems and improving them. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, it's also a challenge uh, to get these systems on the field. And I think uh, that's one of the large barriers to adoption, mm -hmm. uh, the, the required agility of a technology that was developed. Uh, but getting that into use is a, a challenge. Uh, a lot of these additive manufacturing technologies that we know of today has been developed. Uh, they have a long, uh, long history. And they were, most of them were also available in the mid-90s, yet they are not used uh, widely. And uh, some of the barriers for that is uh, not just technical, but also kind of the height and hope curve. Yeah. Where <laughs> hope curve, yeah. the initial proliferation of this uh, rising hype kind yeah. of caused a backlash, and I think that's something we need to address as well. That's actually a great comment, that the hype can destroy the promise in many ways. Yeah. Amela, this, this notion of adoption is one that you've been working on for a long time, but differently. So we, we heard about adoption and some of the constraints, the hype and hope that, that might kill adoption. 
and then the discovery of adoption that, that really puts you on the edge. So different kinds of layers of adoption. What is your view about adoption and leadership? So uh, adoption and leadership have a really uh, wonderful connection, and we try to practice it uh, in our work uh, at MPS. And I'll give a very, uh, very practical example. Most of our students are uh, active duty uh, officers, and uh, once they leave MPS, they will be in charge of uh, um, some smaller, some larger group of individuals. And so um, when they go back to their services, we see them as leaders of, uh, of bringing innovation uh, from MPS um, to their uh, respective units. And so some of them will be practicing additive manufacturing, but their number will be small. However, most of them, if not every single one, will be sooner or later in position to influence adoption of anti-manufacturing and other technologies, other, other approaches. And so uh, what we um, took upon ourselves is to make sure that while they're at MPS, we access them through brown bags, through um, all kinds of events, and provide them with basic understanding and appreciation of the potential that additive manufacturing brings to DOD. And so once they go back to their units, uh, they will be informed, they will know, and they will uh, relate to their uh, role as uh, endorsers uh, of uh, uh, all kinds of technologies, including ad manufacturing. So going back to theory of uh, adoption, endorsement of uh, uh, individuals uh, uh, that are in, uh, held in the high esteem and, and uh, figures that are highly respected, but also making sure that sailors and marines will, will have time to do training, um, understanding that there is a connection to supply chain and so they don't have to go, there is alternative way available. All that knowledge may be small, but it's crucial, crucial on large scale. And so when we have masses of people understanding potential of some technology and acting to support it, then we have a change. Right. So this is the magic of NPS, this interdisciplinary uh, approach, uh, the focus on some mission sets that really do help focus with students and operators who are who are themselves knowing that they've come from someplace and they're going to someplace, but three different points of view that still complement each other in this intellectual teaming is really an extraordinary thing and then doing it with something as advanced as additive manufacturing and then how that comes into cyber and, and, and business and acquisition protocols and how it comes in to all of the things about um, uh, virtual reality and how it goes on to, to AI and ML and how it goes on to the, the discovery of materials and the material science and how it, those, the physics of all of that is really fascinating. So thank you very much for this extraordinary interview and for your contributions to this new way of thinking and, and these new ways of adopting new thinking. I thank you very, very much for your leadership. I want to thank you for tuning in to this Listen, Learn, and Lead series of interviews. These are the kinds of conversations that go on here at NPS every day. And so it has been my pleasure to, to, to have these three experts discussing today with us an extraordinary new way of looking at science and the applied science and, and how it improves our, our world. We look forward to, you, to your return next time for Listen, Learn,